0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the old vault. This time you better armor up your uh, your butt because there is a spear coming for your anus. That's right. Uh we're not talking about uh space here. We're talking about uh
1: Irish mythology. We're getting into the the tales of mighty uh Cuchullin, Cuchullin. We ran into some difficulties pronouncing the title, uh, the name of the hero in this episode, but it is a pretty fun one that we uh, originally published, uh, what, 221 2019 uh, and it's, uh, we figured it's the perfect one to unleash once more uh, right before St. Paddy's Day.
0: Well, let's jump right in.
1: By this time the two combatants were at the edge-feet of swords, then Ferdiad caught Cúholan unguarded and dealt him a blow with his ivory-hilted blade, which he plunged into Cúholan's breast, and Cúholan's blood dripped into his belt, and the ford was red with the blood from the warrior's body. Kuhulan brooked not this wounding, for Ferdia attacked him with a succession of deadly stout blows, and he asked Lug for Gai Bolga. Such was the nature of the Gai Bolga. It used to be set downstream and cast from between the toes. It made a one wound as it entered a man's body, but it had thirty barbs when one tried to remove it, and it was not taken from a man's body until the flesh was cut away about
0: it. And when Ferdi had heard mention of the guy Bolga. He thrust down the shield to shelter the lower part of his body. Cúhullan cast the fine spear from off the palm of his hand over the rim of the shield and over the breast piece of the horn skin so that its farther half was visible after it had pierced Ferdiad's heart in his breast. Ferdiad thrust up the shield to protect the upper part of his body, but that was help that came too late. The charioteer sent the Gaibulga downstream. Kuhullin Caught it between his toes, and made a cast of it at Ferdiad. And the guy Bulga went through the strong, thick apron of smelted iron, And broke in three the great stone as big as a millstone, And entered Ferdiad's body through the anus, And filled every joint and limb of him with its barbs. That suffices now, said Ferdiad. I have fallen by that cast, but indeed strongly
1: do you cast from your right foot. And it was not fitting that I should fall by you.
0: And as he spoke, he uttered these words.
1: O hound of the fair feats, it was not fitting that you should slay me. Yours is the guilt which clung to me. On you my blood was shed. Doomed men who reach the gap of betrayal do not flourish. Sad is my voice. Alas, heroes have been destroyed. My ribs, like spoils, are broken. My heart is gore. Would that I had not fought. I have fallen, O oh, Hound.
2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick. And that opening reading was from the Cecile O'Rahilly translation of, and I'm going to do my best, the Tyne Bo Kalung um, we're going to be obviously talking about Irish mythology today, and unfortunately, that means we're going to be trying to pronounce a lot of words and probably sometimes failing. Please bear with us, but it's done out of love, and we do our best. That's right, and, and it, it feels good to come back around to some Irish uh, mythology here
1: because Irish Irish myth is rich with fantastic ideas, uh, magic, magical beings, monsters, and in this case, a very interesting magical weapon that is the I'm really, unlike anything else
0: I've read about, Robert, you have been on such a kick of magical weapons these days. You, you're, you're big into Cupid's leaden arrows. Uh, we did the trident. Uh, I, I'm, no, I'm, I'm down with it. This is fun. Oh, yeah. We also have the older episode about the um, about various spinning weapons of death that I did with uh, Christian. But even after all those, the episode today about Guy Bulga, the spear of the hero Cú I think this is this takes the cake. This is the weirdest, best magical weapon with, with biological connections that we have discussed yet. I, I am pretty certain of it. Yeah, in fact, it's
1: going to be maybe a fun exercise for listeners to try and predict um, where we're going to land biologically okay. uh, at the end of this episode uh, to, to get into the, the science of the, of the Guy Bulger.
0: Now, Robert, I admit, before we did this episode, I had no idea who Cú Chulainn was, and I probably would have pronounced it like Cú or whatever. I, mm-hmm. I th- this is so this is a hero of Irish mythology who I had never even heard of before.
1: Yeah, I you know I think I'd run across mention of him in, in passing, but I don't think I'd ever actually read any of the tales about him or even the poems about him. I mean, there's a there's a Yeats poem, Cuchulain comforted. Uh, so he's not
0: an obscure character uh, in, in Irish myth by any stretch of the imagination. But Cuchulain is so cool. How could I have not heard about this? I feel like the people who study Irish mythology have got to get in touch with Hollywood or something, get some movies going so people know these myths better. Well, yeah, he's quite a figure. So Cajollin is a you know
1: mythological hero that has been described as the Irish Achilles okay. or even the Irish Incredible Hulk. That's maybe a little closer. Yeah. And it, if you can probably already get a sense here, we're talking about yet another mythological killing machine, an ancient soldier uh, you know, streaked in gore and honor. So in, in many respects, he is what you expect uh, from a, from a mythological hero. You know, He's a mighty warrior, he has this sense of nobility, and he's sort of pushed into tragic circumstances. Yeah,
0: he's tough, he's brave, he's brutal, he meets a tragic end. Right. Now, he's the, the he's a central character
1: in the Ulster Cycle, uh, one of the four great cycles of medieval Irish myth. And the, this cycle takes place in the first century CE and was written in Old and Middle Irish. Um, he, he also appears to factor into certain Scottish traditions as well, Okay, but, so, sort of, but largely Irish. So we'll, let's do the life story
0: of Cú Hullan. So he wasn't born Koholan. Uh, he was born Satanta. Satanta's his given name. Koholan is more like uh, like el becomes Superman. Right. So he's the nephew of the Irish
1: king, uh, King Connor, and uh, he's the offspring of the union between Connor's sister and the god lug we we lug was mentioned in that uh, dramatic reading earlier lug is a member of the tuatha de danann uh, the, um, the sort of spiritual god elf beings of uh, of irish myth okay so like it would, so as with the likes of say Achilles and Hercules, we have a hybrid on our hands here, part human, part divine, mm-hmm. and uh, and he certainly looked uh, like a like a half divine creature. He has uh, he has some some unnatural um, aspects to his appearance that definitely line up with what you might expect from a demigod. What like maybe a few too many of certain body parts? <laughs> yes, for starters, he's just just unnaturally beautiful. He's a paragon of masculine beauty and strength. Okay, and then he has seven fingers on each hand uh-huh. seven toes uh, on each foot and then seven pupils in each eye. Seven pupils in each eye. Well that sounds like a paragon of beauty. Now even as a child his exploits made him famous and then King Connor himself ends up bestowing the new name on him Cuhullin after he kills the great guard dog the hound of Hullin, uh Holland being a smith here with his bare hands at a banquet
0: and so he has to take on this new name uh, as a yeah, like after he kills the smith's hound, he, I, I think, offers to serve himself as the guard of the smith's forge. Yeah,
1: and so now he is Koholan. And then, you know, at the, the end of that uh, dramatic reading, he's referred to as the hound.
0: So I'm thinking because he's this paragon of masculine beauty and strength, there's got to be like a trend-setting kind of thing that people just can't match, right? So it's the same way that after you have a famous movie star who starts wearing a certain kind of hairstyle or something, now that's what's cool and everybody wants to do it. In this case, in first century Ireland, everybody would want to have seven pupils in each eye. <laughs> and so that's what everybody's going to the local witches about. It's not like, you know, make me live forever, give me huge strength, is give me seven pupils in each eye. <laughs> now, of course... And as always when we're talking about mythology it's it's worth
1: noting that um you know there're varying sources there're varying tellings and right. some of the details are going to change
0: with the telling and yeah. the time yeah there are definitely very radically different accounts of cohan
1: now but, but so we've arrived at this version of cohan already he is a, a beautiful powerful warrior with some unnatural characteristics. But, they, but then he also has an additional superpower. But wait, there's more. Yes. <laughs> so he can essentially uh, hulk out is uh-huh. the thing. Uh, he, can, he can enter into a berserker state during battle. But it's not just like a mental state. Like it actually is said to twist and deform his body as he becomes this just unreasonable killing machine. Yeah, the, the reestrade is this process. Yeah and apparently uh, I apparently uh one uh, Thomas Kinsella translated this state as the quote warp spasm <laughs>
0: That sounds like something straight out of the X-Men.
1: Yeah, it sounds it sounds rather chaotic. Uh, it, it, I definitely don't want to be around a warrior when they're entering the warp spasm. It sounds uh, rather dangerous.
0: All right. Well, we've got another quote from the Cecile O'Rahilly translation of the uh, Tyneboe Culling from the Book of Leinster, and this is about what happens in the warp spasm. Quote, then occurred Cú Hullin's first distortion. He swelled and grew big as a bladder does when inflated and became a fearsome, terrible, many-colored, strange arch. And the valiant hero towered above Ferdiad, as big as a Fomor or a pirate. And I think the Fomor, you were saying, Robert, that that's like a giant of Irish mythology. Yeah, it's like a giant ogre type being from Irish myth. So like uh, the Irish version of Jotunheim
1: might be full of these. Yeah, yeah. So, so clearly Koholan is nobody to mess
0: with. Like this is a, this is a terrifying force on the battlefield. Why, why does the author of this work though believe that pirates are gigantic? Yeah, I don't know.
1: I'm, I'm less sure on that one. So Coholland fights bravely throughout his uh, his military career. Mm-hmm. Um, he fights off the the forces of Queen Maeve at the age of seventeen. Uh, v- I believe virtually like single handedly, like he's that powerful a warrior. Mm-hmm. But he's eventually tricked by warriors in the employ of Maeve and slain at the age of twenty seven. So not a long life. But then again, you know, you're, you're an Irish warrior uh, um, during the, the first century. Uh, there's not a long life expectancy there.
0: Now, they kind of have to employ some trickery in order to overcome his strength, which I think is a common feature in like mythic hero cycles. You see that with like uh, Samson oh, yeah. in, in, uh, in, in Jewish legend. And you sort of see a version of it with Achilles with like them finding out his one weakness. Mm-hmm. And indeed, there's basically like a three-part
1: plan that has to be employed here. I mean, the the first one being key, they trick him into eating dog meat,
0: uh, which breaks a taboo and weakens his spirit. Yeah, I read somewhere that this came about by pitting two taboos against each other, like – there's a taboo against refusing hospitality on one hand, mm-hmm. but there's also a taboo against eating dog meat. So what if somebody shows you hospitality by offering you dog meat? Oh, you're, you're, you're caught. You're, yeah, you're caught. And you're there. That's, uh, you know, it's Scylla and Charyptis. Uh, so he had to pick and he picked not refusing hospitality, but he ate the dog meat and that, that screwed him up. Now, the next thing that helps
1: if you 're trying to take out a half divine warrior is to have a divine weapon of your own, a magical weapon of your own that mm-hmm. will uh, that will help you slay them and so that 's what the the trio do here. Uh, they hit him with a magical disemboweling spear that is enchanted to kill kings. They apparently had three of these, and they used two on his um, on, on his accomplices, including the charioteer who mm-hmm. is like the king of chariots, which seems kind of like a a loophole in the whole king thing. Like, you don't have to
0: actually be a king. You're just kind of, uh, quote-unquote, a king of something. But Cuhulan has, like, a really bad dude moment here. Like, he gets hit with the spear, but he's like, I'm not going down that easy.
1: Yeah, yeah. He's not going to die uh, like that. He is going to die standing up, fighting. So he, like tucks his innards back into his body um, and then like, stumbles over to a pillar, lashes himself to the pillar uh-huh. so that he can fight and die standing up. Right. Like they're going to have to come and,
0: and take him on his feet. But okay, so he's tied there, dying, and they got to be afraid, right? Because Cuhulen is this, this this killing machine. Mm-hmm. Even dying, cut open with a with a kill spear, tied to a rock or a pillar, he's going to be scary. So they don't want to get too close. And I, I I think one source says that they had to wait until a bird landed on him, yes. in order to know that he had actually died. Yeah, and then they they move in. Uh, what do you do?
1: You cut off his head to be sure. But when they cut off his head, there's this brilliant light that uh, like cuts off uh, uh, one of the attacker's uh, sword hands, I believe. And then it's not until they they cut off Kuhulun's sword arm that the light dies away and that he's definitely dead. So it's like you don't have it's one thing to cut away the the seed of reason from this mighty war. You also have to cut away like the the, the physical sword hand of the warrior. There's a wonderful, like, full telling of this final battle. Uh, uh, one in particular that I like came from Lady Augusta Gregory, Coo um, uh, uh, of uh, uh, uh from 1902. Uh, That's all online. I I recommend checking that out if you want the full blow-by-blow death of Cú So how do we not have a full Cú movie? Yeah, it seems like we should. I mean, how many Hercules movies do we have, right? Uh, Way too many. Uh, We could easily peel off some of that money into the Cú enterprise here. Yeah.
0: Now, we were talking before the episode about who to cast as Cú We could not come up with a good idea because all of the best Irish actors we were thinking of to cast as this Irish hero are now old. I was like, (laughs) like... Pierce Brosnan, yeah. yeah. Pierce is right there in his name. Yeah, but but sadly
1: like we said he 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 died at 27. You need you need a young like powerful and imposing Irishman who is also a really good actor.
0: Yeah, I think some of my favorite Irish actors, let's see, uh there's uh there's Brendan Gleeson. I guess he, he's older now. There's mm-hmm. uh, I, I love Liam Cunningham, the guy who plays Sir Davos on Game of Thrones. But yeah, I guess, I don't know. I don't know who the young guy is. Yeah, I don't know.
1: Everybody I can think of is too old. Like even people, you know. Uh, there's a thinking. Well, maybe a professional wrestler. Right. Get a big muscle bound dude to play Cuhallen. Okay. Uh, there's there's a guy named Seamus. Who's like a big pale Irish uh wrestler? But he he's too old for the part. Maybe he could play the hulked out version of okay You could do kind of a um you know, like the Incredible Hulk TV show where you had uh, Lou Ferrigno playing the uh, uh-huh. uh, the actual
0: Hulk. Oh, no, wait. This is giving me a great idea. Actually, like the main normal Kuhulen before he hulks out, he should be like super wafy, like a <laughs> very, very wafy, boyish, like teen heartthrob kind of Irish actor. And then when he hulks out, he gets replaced by the bodybuilder. Okay. I like this. Uh, so we'll, we'll, but maybe our Irish listeners especially uh, will have some ideas about who, who could be cast in such a film. Our our Irish listeners also, I'm sure, are going to get in touch with us to let us know how badly we're saying all these words. I'm sorry. All right. Well, we're going to take a break. But when we come back,
1: we're going to get into the real meat of this episode. We're going to talk about uh, the, the unnatural uh, death weapon of Chulainn. we We're going to talk about uh, the Guy Bolga. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray. To treat your allergies, what was your experience like?
1: Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product, and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast-acting; it was already kicking in before I left the house.
0: AstaPro is a first of its kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest twenty-four hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in thirty minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name.
1: All right, we're back. So... Every hero needs a mighty weapon. Uh-huh. And Koholan certainly had one in the Guy Bulga, like a, a, a weapon so mighty that it is the it is the, the death weapon of last resort. He only even turns to it if he's basically fighting an
0: opponent that is on his own level. Now, it is not known exactly how to translate the term Guy Bulga, right? Uh, it's translated in many different ways. I think we know that Guy basically means spear, right? But the Bulga, th- there, there's quite questions about what that means. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Guy certainly means spear or dart,
1: uh, but the the Bolga part uh, is open to some discussion. There's a particular text that we turn to uh, by by a writer by the name of Edward uh, Pettit. I am not going to give you the full name of that article because it'll give away what we're going to get to in the later later portions of this episode. We will say the name of the article yeah, we will we'll say it say it later. But he points out that that uh, the guy Bolga has been translated as just here's a t- sampling, the belly dart, the dart of belly. Barbed spear, spear of bellows, body spear, bagged spear, spear of swelling, uh, the spear of the sack, forked spear. Gapped spear, solar spear, the spear of mortal pain, the eagle spear, spear of the lightning god, spear of the thunderbolt, and he also adds that the boga part has also been interpreted to perhaps refer to an inflated bladder uh, that one uh, so essentially this would be a, f- a fishing spear uh, like one would have tethered to something that floats oh that 's interesting and then likewise it 's also been potentially connected to the fear Uh these according to to Carol Rose. The The the, the folklorist that I often refer to when uh, we're talking about uh, mythological creatures and monsters, Uh, she says these were the mythic first inhabitants of Ireland, defeated by the Tuatha de Danann and driven into mountain caves
0: and forests where they became loathsome monsters. So possible connection there as well. But okay, whatever Bulga means there, bellows, bulge, whatever, uh, we know that this is some kind of special magic spear. So how does it work? What does it do? Well, one
1: of, one of the things is that uh, Cúholan alone uh, knows how to really wield the weapon. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he, uh, he is taught, it depends, depends on which version you're reading. He's either taught by a god or by, a, you know, a, a skilled master. And he alone has mastery of the guy Bulga. But it is, uh, uh, again, it is a, a, a spear, a weapon uh, that uh, you only turn to as like basically a, just a last resort. And also if you're just really willing to, to absolutely murder
0: your opponent. I'm sorry. I'm just suddenly reminded of uh, one of those newspaper articles from the 1920s that we quoted in our death ray episode of mm-hmm. Invention where the guy was like, the death ray is mine and only I can have it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was his
1: death ray in a sense. Now, in in that fantastic reading... At the, the the top of the episode, that story uh, from the cattle raid of Kulang, uh, th- that really gives you some of the the key attributes of the weapon here. So it is brought to Kaholun via a stream. His charioteer puts it in a stream, and it uh, like floats down to him, and then it is cast by the foot. Uh so he picks it up with mm-hmm. his seven-toed foot and casts it uh thusly. Aims it with his seven people eye. Right. And uh and then also in that telling we see that it uh, it pierces his opponent through the anus, which is not a detail that is present in every telling of this story, uh but it is there. <laughs> uh, uh and part of it has to do with the fact that his like you know, these are two you know, former friends, you know the, the I mean, they're still friends, but they're they're battling each other. and and they each have sort of magical uh, abilities, you know. Uh, so Kuholan alone has the mastery of this uh, fabulous barbed weapon, and then his opponent has his horn skin that protects most of his body, mm-hmm. uh, but not the the anus.
0: So you might say that for Diad has an Achilles heel, and it is his anus. It's yes. his Achilles anus. So maybe instead of saying Achilles heel from now on, we should substitute for anus. It's going to be challenging to drop that into just casual conversation. But. I'm good. I'm going to <laughs> darn well to try. try, Robert, <laughs> for the rest of my life for D and Zanus. All right, so that, uh, that, that Edward uh, Pettit um,
1: uh, article that we, we mentioned earlier, and I believe this is Edward G. Pettit uh, from LaSalle University, who's apparently something of a, an, an Edgar Allan Poe expert and uh, a monster expert I'm reading, uh, teaches classes on vampire uh, literature and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he drives home that there are several key attributes that are, that are generally consistent in the various tellings here. So first of all, only Coohellen can wield uh, the guy Bolga here. Uh, he alone was taught its, its martial art,
0: and the teacher varies from a mortal to a sea god. Okay. Uh, another thing he mentions is that it's sort of a single-use weapon, right? Right. Like you, you get one
1: shot. Now, that being said, I don't think he ever misses with the thing, or at least right. I have not read the story where he busts it out and misses. Like accidentally hits, uh, I don't know, a nearby bird in the anus instead. Right. Um, also, it's sometimes sent to him by water, such as uh, in our, our opening uh, story there. It's it, it's like it travels down a stream to him.
0: Mm-hmm. But it doesn't just appear in the context of water. He also, it's like thrown from below the water. Yeah. So it's also, it is a fearsome
1: weapon. So Ferdia wore special armor in an attempt to protect himself from it. And, you know, it's clearly uh, you know, when he sees that the, that this weapon is is, is coming out, mm-hmm.
0: uh, you know, he takes notice. Like it's gotten dire. It's not just a normal spear. It is something that is known to be very dangerous. Right. Uh, just mechanically in its characteristics as a weapon, uh, Pettit says that it is, quote, accurate, sharp, strong and highly penetrative. Yes, to say the least. Uh, it's also inescapable and deadly. And in later
1: tellings, it's uh, also said to be venomous and cursed with an incurable poison that
0: fills the body. Now, one really interesting feature about it is the idea that it many mini-barbed, but mm-hmm. it, at first it's cast as like a single spear that is straight and thin. But then once it pierces the body, it is said to spread out its barbs so that it has to be cut out in order to be removed. You can't just pull it out. Uh, and this would be kind of like the barbs on some existing spears, like fish Fishing spears sometimes would have barbs like this in order to make sure that the thing stays on there once you stab it. But it's not just that it's barbed. It's that there's this idea that it sort of spreads out within the body. So like once you pierce somebody, the point and the barbs, it is said spread to all of the veins or spread to all of the joints and limbs. I'm not quite sure exactly what it means there except I'm sort of – Considering when do you remember in our episode about mistletoe mm-hmm. uh, the plant you know the plant parasite it's a parasite on other plants where we talked about the idea of the haustorium. it's this base sort of root structure for mistletoe that grows on the surface of a tree or another plant and then pierces its stem and sometimes grows down and spreads out little filaments and root structures within the host plant, uh, and we talked about how. So this is a parasite. It's not just like a vampire sticking its fangs into you but as if it sticks its fangs in and sometimes the fangs like continue to grow out inside the body and fill all your blood vessels. Yeah, I think this is a great reference because I definitely
1: get that kind of like growing barbed root, like like just rapid growth of barbs
0: through the entire body, like a real – a true body horror weapon to employ here. But another way to think about that is that's just sort of like it could be a mechanical metaphor for a chemical property, the idea that you stab something and it's got venom or poison or something on it. And even though you only stab the body in one place, the poison spreads out to all the blood. Right. And yeah, so there's – you can make various interpretations
1: of it for sure. Um, It's often described as being white or bright in color. Uh, And of course, it's often drenched in blood in these Mm -hmm. tellings because it doesn't
0: seem to miss And when it hits, it's going to be gory. Now, Pettit says it's also often associated with demons or fire or hell. It's sort of an infernal weapon.
1: Yeah, and even described as being used against actual demons in hell in later traditions, apparently. Mm -hmm. And along those lines, it's also described as as sometimes as as behaving in some ways like a bellows. So, Hmm. uh, again, anytime we're talking about... Say say a magical weapon in mythology. You know we're not so much talking about a single thing, but we're talking about a tradition of a thing, right. various tellings of a thing, and different influences are going to uh, become involved and sort of recolor uh, and uh, you know exactly how it is described. Either way you shake it. It is, a, it is a treacherous weapon, okay, it, yeah. it is, even for a mighty hero to employ, uh, but then there's one final detail, a key detail here, and it has to do with where this weapon comes from because uh-huh. every great weapon that a mythical hero uh,
0: uses, it has to have an origin story, right? Right. Of course, and one of my favorite origin stories for a for like a weapon or a piece of armor or something like that is something that's taken from the body of a monster. Oh, yeah. like uh, Like uh, Hercules, you know, he makes his cloak out of the Nemean lion's uh, hard-to-pierce skin. And in this case, we we have a weapon that
1: is made from a sea monster, from the remains, from the bones of a sea monster. Uh, now, it's described in some translations as being made from the skin of a monster from hell, but uh, hell, Petit says, could have been uh, you know the depths of the ocean and this is supported he says by later tales in which our hero Koholan defeats barb-tailed
0: beasts from the ocean. Now I think Pettit also talks about versions where it is said to come from the skull of something called like a dog head. Yeah. Which could be interpreted as some version of like shark or dogfish type creature uh, but also is in some way seen as a sea monster. Right. So at, at this point in the episode I'm going to
1: tell you what the, the full title of his paper is. Coo-Holland's uh, Guy Bolga, From Harpoon to Stingray Spear. That's the, that's the title. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get into Pettit's Stingray Hypothesis.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, All right, we're back. All right, so here's the part of the podcast where we play a game we often like to play, which is taking a a story or an object from myth and wondering, like, could there be a natural world explanation for, w- for what inspired this myth or this image or this creature from mythology. And of course, this this type of game we always like to point out does have a weakness. It has a ferdietzanus, you might say, yes, yes. which is that we, we don't want to overlook the fact that there's lots of creative imagination involved in mythology and you don't always have to explain the contents of a myth by pointing to something that really happened in history or really exists in nature and saying that inspired it. We, we don't always know that that's what happened. Maybe sometimes that happened maybe sometimes as people just using their imagination. But in any case, this can be a really interesting game to play because there is no doubt that at least in many cases, things and myths were inspired by stuff people saw in nature. And Edward Pettit's hypothesis here is that this mighty weapon
1: was the spine of a stingray, or at least at some point in its legacy, uh, it is interpreted as such. Stories of stingray barbed weapons
0: uh, are employed then to describe this weapon that Coojollin wields. Yeah, and this this uh, inspiration could go multiple ways if, in fact, there is such an element of uh, this kind of inspiration in the stories. It could be that people saw a stingray spine in nature and this led to the original idea of uh, the the Geibolga spear. But it could also be that ideas about stingray spines colored later tellings of an existing mythical spear that was already in some stories. But let's see if there's anything to this idea uh, and start by looking at what's a stingray. So a stingray is a type of ray. And rays are cartilaginous fish, cousins of sharks, this this family of sharks and rays. They're called the elasmobronchs. They're fish with skeletons made of cartilage instead of bone. It's the same bendy stuff you've got in your ears. And the superorder of rays is batoidea. Uh, stingrays in particular are found in the suborder of rays known as myelobatiformes. Now, like other rays, stingrays kind of have a flattened body and a large, somewhat rounded pectoral set of fins that are fully fused with the head and the body. And this makes them sort of uh, rounded off like a pancake fish. Mm-hmm. Often stingrays tend to swim by sort of undulating their, uh, their their wide pectoral fins sort of just like waves rather than flapping like wings. And stingrays in particular tend to have flat bodies that blend in with the seafloor. Often they're camouflaged uh, and th- th- that's because they spend most of their time on the seafloor hiding out, often partially buried in sediment. You'll sometimes see stingrays like down, down in the sediment with like sand piled on top of their little wings. And some researchers believe that their eyes are poorly placed for hunting given that their body is this sort of flat disc shape and their mouths are down on the bottom and their eyes are up on the top. But that's okay because they don't need to rely entirely on their eyes for hunting. Like sharks, stingrays have organs that are known as the ampullae of Lorenzini, and these are small pores in the skin that can detect electric fields in the water. And of course, all animals generate electric fields in the water, especially when they contract their muscles. So if there is a prey animal out there swimming, moving around, or even just with a beating heart, you can probably sense some kind of electric voltage difference that it is causing in the water with your ampullae of Lorenzini, but they've also got a magnificent spine and that's what we're going to be focusing on today. The stingray has a, a spine with venom, sometimes deadly venom, that can, in some cases, kill humans.
1: Now, t- to be clear, stingrays very rarely attack
0: or kill humans. Yes, they, they are not considered aggressive at all. They, generally, if there's an incident between humans and stingrays, it's defensive because the human like stepped on the stingray or, or loomed over it. Right, and uh, the latter seems to have probably been the case with the most
1: famous case in recent history uh, of a stingray-related death, that of uh, the crocodile hunter, Steve Irwin. Oh, yeah, that was sad. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, a tragic uh, case. 2006, mm-hmm. uh, and he died after he sustained numerous stabs from an eight-foot-wide stingray. He was in, uh, in a shallow water. Um, he, was, uh, he was in close proximity to the creature they were filming, and the, the theory I read is that the, the ray might have thought Irwin's shadow was a tiger shark in the shallow uh, uh, water there, mm-hmm. and then it uh, reportedly stabbed him hundreds of times, and and one of the stabs pierced his heart and then he bled to death.
0: Yeah, that's a, it's a sad story. But it, it's not the only time that, that people have actually been killed by stingray spines. They're, right. They they can um, – they cause, I mean, severe just direct trauma, like can pierce the skin and cause a lot of bleeding. But they also in many cases do have very powerful venom. So, But it, I think it is
1: worth noting, like given especially that this case occurred in shallow water, mm-hmm. that it's not – Unbelievable that medieval or or even older uh, people. Would certainly people that that made their their livelihoods uh, at the seaside would have encountered and even encountered fatally uh, stingrays at some point or
0: another no it's not unlikely at all and in fact we know for a fact that the ancient people that ancient peoples you know long before the medieval Irish myths ancient peoples knew about stingrays and they knew about the venom on their spines and they, they knew some things about how these spined uh, spears worked in fact stingray spine tipped spears already exist in ancient heroes myths oh. Do you know this? No I was not aware of this no So you know the story the Greek myth of Odysseus mm-hmm. uh, th- this is told in in the Odyssey, for example. Uh, Odysseus and the witch Circe had a son named Telegonus. Uh, and remember, of course, the the story of how Odysseus and Circe got together is that while Odysseus is on his way home, he ends up at the manor of Circe, and Circe is this witch sorceress figure who turns all of Odysseus's men into swine. But Odysseus saves them with the help of the gods, and then he ends up essentially being Circe's live-in boyfriend for a <laughs> while. Um, meanwhile, while his wife Penelope is home being very dutiful and waiting on him, he's right. like shacking up with Circe. So as usual, Odysseus is kind of a jerk. But uh, so he's doing that and uh, while he's there, he apparently he has a son with Circe and this son's name is Telegonus. But of course, eventually, Odysseus has to get home to his home of Ithaca, his wife Penelope and his son Telemachus. And so here is a, uh, a passage from Fraser's translation, English translation of a passage from uh, Apollodorus. Quote, when Telegonus learned from Circe that he was a son of Ulysses who is also that's another name for Odysseus, he sailed in search of him. And having come to the island of Ithaca, he drove away some of the cattle, and when Ulysses defended them, Telegonus wounded him with the spear he had in his hands, which was barbed with the spine of a stingray, and Ulysses died of the wound. Pettit in his article also quotes a second century Greek text on fishing by an author named Oppian, which tells another version of this story, and I'll uh, read this quote as well. While the stingray lives, a terrible and fiery weapon attends it, such I ween as a man trembles to hear of, and it lives when the stingray itself has perished, and preserves its unwearied strength unchanged, and not only on the living creatures which it strikes does it belch mysterious bane, but it hurts even tree and rock and wherever it comes nigh. That sting it was which his mother Circe, skilled in many drugs, gave of old to, le- to Teleganus, For his long-hilted spear, that he might array his foe's death from the sea. And he beached his ship on the island that pastured goats, and he knew not that he was harrying the flocks of his own father. And on his aged sire, who came to the rescue, even on him whom he was seeking, he brought an evil fate. There the cunning Odysseus, who had passed through countless woes of the sea in his laborious adventures, the grievous stingray slew with one blow." So that's kind of combining uh weirdly enough, like the like uh, the the Odysseus tradition and sort of the Oedipus tradition, right like yeah. accidentally coming across and killing your own father
1: well um it it's interesting too to bring it back to Kohulan, uh I believe there in, in uh, the part of the story there is that Kohulan ends up accidentally killing his own son uh with the the guy bolga. At one point, uh, like he does not know that it's his son and he ends up engaging in combat with him.
0: Well, yeah, Pettit seems to notice some pretty strong similarities between these myths. And so he's I think this is one reason he has for wondering if the idea of the stingray is actually incorporated into the Guy Bulga legend. Uh, he Pettit also mentions that some sources claim Circe had the stingray tipped spear made by the Greek forge god Hephaestus out of a spine stolen from a stingray by the sea god for- and, of course, we know that the Gaibolga was made, at least in some tellings, from the body of some kind of sea monster or sea creature.
1: Right, and in some tellings, the art of the Gaibolga is instructed to Koholan by a god of
0: the sea. But just as further evidence of what the ancients uh, knew or thought they knew about stingray spines, uh, l- l- why not have a look at our old friend Pliny the Elder as well? Oh, yes. this yes. Uh, P- Pettit points to this passage, quote, but there is nothing in the world more execrable than the sting projecting above the tail of the stingray, which our people call the Pastinaca. It is five inches long and kills trees when driven into the root. That's sort of like what uh, Oppian said right there. Mm-hmm. It kills not just animals, but like trees and stones. I don't know how you kill a stone. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Pliny continues and penetrates armor like a missile with the force of steel and with deadly poison. So, Pettit sees really strong parallels between the myths of Cuhullin and Telegonus and sees some of these parallels between what was understood by the ancients about the stingray spine and the myth of the guy Bulga. The Gaibolga is said to come from the water. It gets thrown from under the water. It's associated with shallow water. Sometimes it's said to be made from the body or skull of some type of sea monster. And of course, it is true that stingrays can be found in the coastal waters of Ireland and they can grow to quite a monstrous size and like the underside of them, Pettit points out, can resemble a grinning or grimacing face.
1: Oh, that's true. They're certainly, if you've ever been to an aquarium, you know, if they come up to the glass, uh, you, you see what looks like a face there. But the eyes are on the other side, obviously.
0: And crucially, the, the one of the issues here is that a stingray spine is not like the fang of a snake or something, which once mm. removed is just like a piece of tooth. You know, there's nothing right. to it. Uh, the ancients understood that a stingray spine could remain deadly for some time after the ray was dead or after it's removed from the ray. Uh, so maybe maybe some like forty eight hours afterwards. So detaching it from the ray and attaching it to a weapon would immediately render it harmless it could still have of course the the normal like piercing potential, but the, the venom as well.
1: Ah, now this is interesting because that, that epic battle that Quholin has with Thordiad it supposedly rages for three days uh-huh. before they finally reach the point where Quholin calls for the guy Bulga. Um So he he couldn't, I mean, just based on this sort of 48-hour rule, is like a rough guideline for utilizing a, a, a magical stingray weapon in battle, like he wouldn't be able to bring that to the field with him. Thus, he has to call on his charioteer. To send it down the water to him, and then he can uh, he can fetch it with his fabulous seven-toed foot and fling it up the anus of his opponent.
0: Yeah, so I I don't know if Pettit's right about this connection. I mean, he he also he adduces a lot of evidence that we didn't even have time to get into. It's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff about like the minutiae of the translation of the word bulga and how that could point to stingrays and stuff like that, but.
1: I'll be sure to link to the entire article on the landing page for this episode of StuffToBlowYourMind.com. So anybody who wants to really dive into the evidence there and and risk uh, getting
0: stung, uh, (laughs) uh, you'll be able to do so. Uh, Yeah, so I I, I don't know if he's correct about this, but it's a really interesting case and another wonderful example of biomythology. Yeah. I love the way that myth and legend traditions Present us with these little mysteries, like that they can be these little puzzle boxes because of the odd characteristics of elements within them. You know, like the idea of the spear being thrown with the seven toed foot from under the water mm-hmm. into the anus, and you just wonder, like, okay, is this just weird just because it's weird, or does all this weirdness point to something? Is there something I'm missing?
1: Yeah, or to what extent are we dealing with errors in translation, uh, you know, things that should be notable? Um, you know, metaphor or symbol, mm-hmm. but out of context, just sounds like something just really wackadoodle looking. Uh, is, uh, these are always questions one has to ask. But that being said, I, I feel like you can always just em- embrace just the raw alien uh, nature of the the myth you're presented with too, and just a, a jo- enjoy it on that
0: level as well. Yeah. Like, nothing, nothing more fun than a really impractical weapon. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, speaking of which, um, I, I have to say, uh,
1: as, as a fan, a longtime fan of the the Mortal Kombat games, you know, <laughs> they, they they put. Oh, one did out. somebody have a guy ball guy in there? No, but they should. Like one of the things is you have in, in these games, especially today, you increasingly overly complicated fatalities mm-hmm. where, you know, one fighter, uh, finishes off the other one by doing something just ridiculous, you know, like not only slicing off their head, but then slicing the head in half, that sort of thing. Yeah. But really, when you look at the story of the guy, Bolga, they've got nothing, you know, like the, <laughs> uh, the Irish mythology has, has, has all the mortal combat you need.
0: Yeah. I'd like to see Raiden versus Cuchulain. <laughs> yeah, they could put him in there. Make him, uh, make him a downloadable character. Well, wait—they have started crossing genres, haven't they? I think I saw, I don't play the Mortal Kombat games anymore, but I feel like I saw that they're—they've got like aliens and Jason Voorhees and stuff. Oh in them yeah, now. they've
1: definitely brought in characters from other franchises. Yeah, but, um, eh, but I don't think they've brought in any. I don't know if they brought in any additional mythological figures. They should. I mean, they already play with a little bit of that. So. Um, now, one additional question I had based on all of this is, all right, with the with the guy Bolga, you have a kind of impractical weapon. That is also sure fire, like it is going to end the fight if you ever actually pull it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yet he'll, uh, will wait three days to actually do it. Right? Uh, do we have other examples in our fiction and other myths where you have this, this, this sure shot weapon that for some reason your heroes never actually produce
0: until the last minute? I feel like that happens a lot, but I'm struggling to think of an example right now
1: the the only one that that really came to mind recently was in the the original uh, Pacific Rim film oh yeah like the big robots the the what do they call the um the 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 Yeagers. they're they're beat down. They're on the, the 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 point of being defeated by the giant kaiju monsters, mm-hmm. and then only then do they start using these big swords that pop out of their uh, their limbs uh-huh. and just completely decimate the, uh, the the creatures that they're battling.
0: Oh, I know an example. You remember the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers? Oh yeah. How like they would have to keep uh the th- when they faced a more powerful monster, they'd have to keep like upgrading to like the next level of oh, robots. Yes. And you always wondered like why don't they just go to the top level? of robots every time so they instantly defeat their opponent no matter what.
1: Yeah, why Why isn't that your first move to go ahead and do that <laughs> exactly. instead of destroying half a city uh, battling the, the monster for sure, yeah. Or for instance, Voltron is another example. Like I feel like they would try and battle whatever the, the, the Robeast or the, the threat of the week happened to be yeah. with just the lions and then they're like, ah, I guess we need to form Voltron to actually deal with this scenario. Just go ahead and form Voltron.
0: That's exactly <laughs> the same thing as the Power Rangers. Yeah, yeah. first they'd fight it hand to hand and then it would get big magic wand make my monster grow it get big and then they'd form a bigger robot uh and then they'd fight it and then they'd it would get bigger again or something and then they'd have to do another thing they'd have to go to the like the final robot level well i guess maybe in all of this there is a certain amount of um
1: like martial arts storytelling like like I I am reminded in professional wrestling, for instance, especially in like the Japanese uh, varieties, mm-hmm. uh, there'll be like a super finisher that an individual has, like a move that they rarely bust out because it's like too dangerous. <laughs> but if the match is is uh, you know goes on long enough uh, and their other finishers haven't worked, then they will turn to uh, you know to something like the you know the like the Gonzo Bomb, you know something that is the, the kind of the equivalent of the Guy Bulga. What
0: is the Gonzo Bomb?
1: It's uh, this guy named. Uh, 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 Kawada uh, would use it as, it's like a power bomb where he just drops you right on your neck um, it, you know brutal movie only busted it out like a few times, mm-hmm. but it was kind of like his, his super move, his super form uh, that he would assume. And so I guess it makes sense from a storytelling point of view. If you're you're telling the story of epic, mythic uh, combatants uh, going at each other, uh, that there would be this one move beyond that they might turn to. And in the case of the Guy Bolga, it's not a pleasant weapon. It's a treacherous weapon. It's yeah. kind of like your hero cheating a little bit at the very end out of desperation.
0: Well, the, they had to cheat to defeat him in the end too that's true so they yeah, had turn to to trick to him. yeah though I guess he did that I guess it's the opposite order but but still yeah, yeah some t- uh, treachery ends up being employed uh even on the mythic <laughs> battlefield <laughs> this is the new version of the Han shot first t-shirt it's well <laughs> <Kuelin laughs> cheated first <laughs>
1: oh man you have print it I'd wear it speaking of you know we do have a t-shirt store um you can uh, you can oh, can we get those made I <laughs> I, I would love to see it. Maybe, maybe it, will, it will be there uh, soon. Uh, for the time being, though, we have all sorts of fun, like, squirrel-related and great basilisk-related and black hole-related designs, as well as just, you know, what you might expect, like logo-based designs as well. Uh, you can find that if you go to our mothership, stufftoblowyourmind.com. There is a, a link at the top for our store. It's our Tee Public store. Uh, check that out. It's a fun way to support the show. But the best way to support the show is to simply rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so, wherever you get this podcast. Also, be sure to check out our other show, Invention. That's already out there. Uh, I think we're, what, a, about a dozen episodes in. Each yeah. episode, a new, life-changing, world-altering invention. We Not discuss- always life-changing and world-altering, sometimes just weird and small and interesting. That's true. But, I mean, it all, it's still, it ultimately changes the, the, the shape of life in some way or another. Like, mm-hmm. even things that didn't quite Quite come to being like the death ray.
0: Yeah, can't disagree with you there. Uh, so definitely check out Invention. If you like this show, we're pretty sure you'll like that show too. Anyway, big thanks as always to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at blowthemind at how stuffworks.com.